0: Most of you know that I am an avid sports fan. It's no secret. Have you ever noticed how sports fans tend to identify themselves personally with the team that they root for? Uh, so last year, for, for Kansas City Chiefs fans like me, it was we beat the Eagles in the Super Bowl, right? Or when the Chiefs lost the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, it was our offensive line was too banged up to win the game. That's why we lost. Now, friends, I, I've never I've never played for the Chiefs. In fact, I, I've never played competitive football. Um I uh, I have never worked for the Chiefs, though that would be a dream come true in many ways. Uh but all I can say is I grew up 20 minutes from the stadium, right? Uh I've paid money to purchase tickets at Arrowhead Stadium. I I've bought Chiefs gear. I follow them on Twitter for crying out loud, right? Surely this qualifies me to act as if I'm part of the Kansas City Chiefs. Their win is my win. Their losses are my losses. Uh, maybe you've seen a, a championship parade for a sports team. Uh, obviously, not here in Phoenix anytime recently. If you were here in 2001, maybe you joined that parade for the Diamondbacks. Uh, but in another city where where the team, after their parade through the city, uh, they come together in a central location and the team addresses usually hundreds of thousands of fans who gather there for a celebratory pep rally. And, and what do the, the players often say to the fans? We did this for you guys, right? All of the work, all of the blood, sweat and tears was to bring you the victory. Right. That and the fat paycheck, right? That's why they did it. You know, the average sports fan is is not talented enough to step foot on a professional court or field, let alone win a championship. Instead, we rely on our champions to win the victory for us. They do the fighting and the winning. We do the celebrating. Friends, we see this very type of thing In our passage today in Joshua 9 to 12. Only it's not a, it's not a collective team of individuals that, that fight and win, but one supreme, infinitely mighty and gracious God who takes up the cause of his sinful people, goes to war against their enemies and wins the victory that they never could. God is the champion of his people. The battle is his and his alone. Friends, this encouraging message dominates the pages of Joshua 9 to 12. So would you please turn there? Joshua 9, Joshua chapter 9 is on page 184 of the Bible underneath your seats. If you don't have a Bible this morning, pick that Bible up from under there, turn it to page 184. If you don't own a Bible, well friends, please take that home and make it your Bible. That would give us a lot of joy for you to own a Bible. Friends, the chapters we're looking today, chapters 9 to 12 of Joshua, are really the wrap-up of the conquest of Israel over Canaan, or perhaps we could say the conquest of God over Canaan that He gives to Israel. So we just came out of chapters 6 to 8. In chapters 6 to 8, what happened? God gave His people the victory at Jericho and then eventually at Ai after Achan's rebellion caused Israel to fall. Friends, this whole thing, this... This entire conquest, it's just one massive show and tell to the faithfulness and power of God. Hundreds of years before, he had promised Abraham that he would give Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan, that, that Canaan would be the place in which God would work out his purpose of salvation that he would bring to the nations. Friends, Joshua, as we've discovered, is the record of how God made good on his word and given his people the land. Now, friends, lest you needlessly be dismayed this morning. It's such a long sermon text. Okay. Four chapters. Uh, let me assure you, we're not going to look at it all in detail. Uh, but I do want you to understand how these, how these chapters are stitched together and see for yourself what's going on. So let me take you on a little bit of a guided tour uh, of chapters nine to 12 before we dig in. Chapter nine, verse one is the narrative summary of what's going to unfold in chapters 9 to 11, and specifically in chapters 10 and 11. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Okay, so that's the summary of what's coming. Nearly all the kingdoms of Canaan align themselves together against the people of God. Well, The rest of chapter 9 is this story of how Israel made a covenant with the Gibeonites of Canaan, and we'll come back to that story here in a few minutes and look at it in, in detail. Uh, chapter 10 is largely the story of how God honored that treaty with Gibeon and then rushed to their defense against an alliance of kings who had come up against Gibeon. And what happens? God fights the battle for his people and therefore for Gibeon. He is the great warrior and champion. Now look down at the end of chapter 10. At the end of chapter 10, if you're reading the ESV version that that I'm going to read from, you'll see the heading over verse 29, conquest of southern Canaan. And that's an accurate description. Now that, that central Canaan was in Israel's hands, they moved to take the southern section. Uh, in verses 29 to 43, the Lord gave Joshua victory over seven kings and nations. How? Because of Joshua's military genius? No, look at the summary in verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Joshua led, Israel attacked, but it was God who fought for his people and won the victory. Okay, we're keeping going on this guided tour. Now look at chapter 11. You can see the heading over chapter 11, conquest in northern Canaan. Again, accurate. This time in verses 1 to 5, this vast coalition of the northern tribes and armies and uh, with tons of horses and chariots goes to war against Israel. And yet look at verse 6. Verse six, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them for tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. (laughs) In other words, not only am I gonna give you the victory, Joshua, you're not gonna need to take the enemy's horses and chariots and make them your own for future battles. You're not gonna need them. Why? Because I'm gonna continue to fight for you. Chapter 12, chapter 12 is like the celebratory annals of the conquest. The author of Joshua lists out all the kings that Israel defeated, both on the east side of the Jordan before they entered the land, and then the 31 kings on the west side of the Jordan inside the land. All of it highlighting, friends, that the God of Israel is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. The the nations may rage against him but our God always wins. Are you starting to get the picture of what these chapters are about? Friends, these chapters, chapters 9 to 12 of Joshua, are the record of God fighting for his people. He commands, Joshua leads, the people trust and obey, and God, their champion, gives the victory. Friends, I think that points us to the main idea of the text today, Joshua 9 to 12, that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. God, our champion, wins the battles that we, his weak and sinful people, could never win for ourselves. God, our champion, our warrior king, wins the battles that we, his weak and sinful people, could never win for ourselves. Friends, this is the best news that you and I could ever hear. You know, in the last 3,400 years, our God has not changed. This this is still how He operates. Surely what we're seeing here in, in Joshua is that, is that like Israel, if we have any shot of making it to the promised land and defeating the enemies that threaten our eternal future, we need the God of heaven and earth to fight our battles for us. We are far too weak and far too sinful to expect to win them ourselves. Friends, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to turn our attention to two things about God our champion that I hope will encourage us this morning. Number one, our merciful champion. See that in chapter nine. Our merciful champion. Number two, our mighty champion. We see that in chapter 10. Friends, I pray these two things about our God and the fact that he fights our battles will indeed encourage us in the word today. Let's look at chapter nine, our merciful champion. I'm going to start reading in verse 3, and we'll read down to verse 21. Joshua 9, 3. After the summary of these kings coming together against Israel, verse 3, "...but when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning." They said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? They said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth." So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them and behold, they've burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Japhira, Be'eroth, and kiriath Jarim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the, the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they became came cutters of wood, and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. What a strange story, right? I mean, who would you say are the good guys and the bad guys in this story? Who's in the right? And who's in the wrong? I mean, on the one hand, you've got the Gibeonites, who verse seven says were part of the Hivites of Canaan, whom God had devoted to destruction. They run an elaborate con, right? They lied their way into a covenant with Israel. All all of their worn-out sacks and tattered wineskins and patched sandals and their tug-on-the-heartstrings story about their warm, fresh bread turning old, it was nothing but a ruse to trick God's people. And it worked, didn't it? And yet, despite their lying, which was clearly wrong, Friends, I think we see in the Gibeonites the seed, the germ of faith in God. I mean, let's face it. What were the other people groups of Canaan doing at that time? They were coming to war against Israel. The, Gi- the Gibeonites clearly chose another path. They feared God enough not to fight Israel. They, they cast themselves on the mercy of Joshua. Even in their deception, I think they, they displayed profound humility before the Lord. What about Israel? What do we see of them? Well, it's also a mixed bag, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, verse 14 says that Joshua and the leaders of Israel made a huge mistake. They failed to ask counsel from the Lord. They relied on their own wisdom instead of asking God for His. That's how they were duped. And yet, even when it would have been easiest and most convenient for them to break the treaty with Gibeon after they realized they'd been conned, what did they do? Joshua chose to honor the covenant that he had made with Gibeon in order to honor the Lord in whose name he had made that promise. So friends, what are we supposed to take away from Joshua 9, this mixed bag chapter? It can't be merely, don't be like the Gibeonites and be like Israel or vice versa. Friends, this passage is far more complicated and complex than that. More than anything, this, this story points us toward the mercy of God toward the unrighteous, right? God's mercy is the overarching message of this chapter. So let's look at the text in detail. In verses 3 to 6, we're given a peek into the lengths which Gibeon went to trick Israel. Now, and friends, this, this ruse was planned. It was cunning, as the text says. It turned out to be super effective, And believe it or not, I think this con reveals that Gibeon had read the Torah, the law of Moses. They knew how Israel might respond to their deception. Look at verse 6. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country. So now make a covenant with us. Now, why did they request a covenant? Well, the Torah, the law of Moses, it gives different rules of engagement for how Israel was to deal with peoples and cities outside the land of Canaan versus peoples and cities inside the land. You can read uh, Deuteronomy twenty ten to 18, it spells it all out. God told Israel to destroy all the people of Canaan as his just and, and holy judgment against them, which by the way, includes the Hivites, of which the Gibeonites were part of. Gibeonites knew that God had told Israel to destroy them, and yet they also seem to understand that God allows Israel to make peace, to make treaties with people groups outside the boundaries of Canaan. So what do they do? They come into the camp of Israel acting like they're from outside the land and asking for a covenant. In verses 7 and 8, they they say they've come to to find Israel because they they heard what the Lord did for Israel in Egypt and for The battles outside the land, the victory over Sihon and Og, they conveniently left out anything about Jericho or Ai, right? I mean, that would have given it all away. They're not supposed to be from around here. Couldn't mention those battles. Well, then to cap the ruse off in verses 12 to 13, they offered their their meager, depleted provisions, quote-unquote, to Israel as a sign of goodwill. And Israel (laughs) bought the sham, hook, line, and sinker. Look at verse 14, verse 14. So the men took some of the provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. Friends, how did Israel get duped by Gibeon? Was it merely that the Gibeonites were amazing con artists? (laughs) No, The reason that they made such an ungodly decision was that they failed to ask the Lord what they should do. They relied purely on their sight and on their own wisdom rather by walking by faith and asking God for his wisdom. Joshua and the leaders of of Israel simply evaluated the situation for themselves and they made a call, right? Friends, their error was not that they failed to think. Their great error was that they forgot to pray. And that prayerless evaluation of the situation placed them on a path toward great error. Friends, Israel's sin here wasn't like the high-handed, arrogant rebellion of Achan. It was something far more subtle. It was the pride of thinking they had it all under control. Don't get me wrong, friends. God wants you to use your mind when making choices and decisions in this world. As believers, we don't need to be afraid of applying biblically shaped logic and even common sense to situations that that require discernment because after all, we have the Spirit of God helping us. The more we mature in the word of, of the Lord as Christians, the more our minds will be shaped to think and even react in an instinctive way That's biblical. So clearly, I'm not underselling the importance of biblical thinking. But beloved, let's be real. I mean, not all situations are black and white, are they? Not every decision that we make has a direct, thus says the Lord, behind it. So often in this life, we run up against situations that require the application of biblical wisdom to to situations and circumstances that are really hard and really difficult to discern. Friends, what Israel learned the hard way is a truth that is taught throughout the entire Bible. Leaning on your own understanding and your own wisdom is foolish. It displays self-confidence, not God-confidence. It's fundamentally proud and self-sufficient. Friends, when we neglect to pray for God's wisdom and God's help in these types of situations, we neglect the very means by which God has promised to give us wisdom. I mean, it's spiritual self-sabotage. Listen to James 1.5. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him think. Let him use this logic. No, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. James is talking about the skill of understanding the world in light of God's word. He's talking about how we apply biblical priorities to rubber meets the road, life decisions. And he assumes we as, as finite human beings do not have all the wisdom that we need. And he says, there's only one place you get it. You must ask God for it, who delights to give it generously to all who ask him. Friends, I remember not too long ago, uh, I accepted a, a certain ministry opportunity that came my way. And, and I remember talking to Lindsay about it. And honestly, I made a, a pretty quick decision. And I, and I remember her asking me, how much did you pray about this decision? She remember wincing, like, easy, right? Back off. And she was right. Honestly, I had not spent much time in prayer about it at all. The the opportunity fit my gifting really well. It seemed like an easy choice to me. But I did not take time in humble dependence to rely on the Lord for his guidance. Brothers and sisters, when we operate like that, it betrays deep down that we think we're just fine by ourselves. It betrays a pride and self-sufficiency that resides in our hearts. So, you know, as you pray for the elders of Redeeming Grace Church, and I hope you do pray for us, we would cover your prayers. Beloved, one of the greatest and most relevant things that you can pray for both Steve and I is that we would be men who do not rely on our own wisdom. Pray that we would bathe our decisions in prayer, that we wouldn't just get around the elder table and kind of logic our way through decisions, but that we would rely on the wisdom that God gives to guide and lead the church. Husbands, dads, this type of prayer-soaked decision-making is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to your family. Don't make life and leadership decisions on autopilot. Don't rely solely on your intellect or your street smarts or your instincts. Well, friends, be humble men. Be men who lead through the humility of fervent prayer. Moms, Don't make important decisions about your children using the wisdom alone of the hottest Facebook group, right? Or even your own motherly instincts. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Single brothers and sisters, maybe you're you're tempted by this type of pride since right now you're not as spiritually responsible for others like you might be one day if the Lord gives you a life partner and a family. Well, friends, don't let your singlehood become a context for self-sufficiency. Use your single years to develop a robust prayer life of dependence upon the Lord. Beloved, even if you think you know the right call, let this story instruct you. Don't be hasty. Don't presume upon your own wisdom. Don't bank on what your eyes can see alone. Stop and pray and ask the Lord for his wisdom. In verses 16 and following, Israel realizes that they've been played. (laughs) right? They follow the Gibeonites to their home, which is actually not that far away. It's just a three-day hike. And right here, Israel is faced with a choice, aren't they? Honestly, my initial take when I read this passage for the first time was that Israel should not have had to keep their treaty with Gibeon. After all, they made it under the presumption of something that wasn't true. Gibeon pulled the wool over their eyes, and therefore Israel shouldn't have been bound to hold up their end of the deal. That's what I was thinking. And clearly that's how the majority of the congregation of Israel saw things. Verse 18 said that, says that the congregation murmured against the leaders because of the predicament that they now found themselves in and the fact that their, their leaders were intent on honoring this covenant with Gibeon. But, but look at why the leaders of Israel chose to honor their covenant with Gibeon anyway. Verse 19, But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Friends, do you see how God-centered their reasoning is? I mean, their self-sufficiency in the initial decision was profoundly wrong, but their response to this situation was profoundly right. Why? Because Israel realized that if they broke an oath made in Yahweh's name, it would reflect poorly upon that very name before the pagan Gibeonites. If Israel were to breach the covenant, it would imply to the Gibeonites that God's name didn't mean much to them at all. It would give the impression not only that they could not be trusted, it would imply that their God could not be trusted either. And so they kept their word to honor their God, even when it hurt, even when it was inconvenient. I said John, how do you know this was the right decision? Well, really because of what we see in chapter 10, right? When Adon- Adonai Zedek and the five kings made war against Gibeon. How'd you like that for your first name? Adonai Zedek. Um, Maybe not the hottest name in the, in the registries these days. Adonai, Zedek, and the five kings made war against Gibeon and Israel, uh, or against Gibeon. Israel honored their covenant. They sought to protect Gibeon. And what happened? The Lord fought for Israel and therefore fought for Gibeon. That's how I know they made the right choice. It was a profound display of God's mercy to them. Friends, this, this passage teaches us that two wrongs do not make a right. You should not respond to sin by adding more sin to escape the consequences. You don't bring light to a situation by adding more darkness. Here, Joshua and the leaders of Israel kept their side of the covenant at great inconvenience to themselves. Why? Because the honor of God was at stake. We don't have time to apply this principle at length now, but I would encourage you as you gather in your home groups in the house-to-house groups this week, think about ways to apply this principle. Situations where keeping a promise in which you've invoked God's name and his reputation is more important than your own personal convenience or advantage. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's in the promises of our church covenant. I'm sure there are multiple situations where that might be the case. Think about ways to apply this principle. What a difference it made for Israel. What a difference it makes for you and me when God is the front and center of all we do. When his glory, not ours, controls our thoughts. Well, we didn't read the, the conclusion of the story yet. <laughs> and up to this point, it's really hard to see much good in this situation, isn't it? I mean, giving are liars, Israel's gullible and self-sufficient. And verse 21 says that even though the Gibeonites were allowed to live, they were consigned to hard manual labor and the life of Israel. Is there really any good for anyone in Joshua 9? Well, let's read verses 22 to 27. Joshua summoned them and he said to them, "'Why did you deceive us, saying, We are very far from you, when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants.'" cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you, so we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now, behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day and the place that he should choose. Where's the good? As the clear message of Joshua 9 is that there is mercy from the Lord for anyone who's in right relationship to Joshua. Did you see verse 26? Joshua delivered Gibeon from the anger of the people of Israel. He is the savior of Gibeon. God treated the Gibeonites with mercy because they cast themselves upon the mercy of Joshua. E- even the curse that Joshua pronounced over the Gibeonites seemed to be softened as the biblical story moves forward. I mean, yes, that these These Gibeonites became cutters of wood and drawers of water, but look at where they would labor. Not only for the congregation of Israel in general, but for the altar of the Lord and the house of the Lord. Verse 27 says, God placed these Gibeonites in close proximity to his very covenant presence at the tabernacle and then later the temple. The Gibeonites were given the immense privilege of, of facilitating Israel's worship and the sacrificial system where day after day and, and year after year, their burnt offerings proclaimed to the world what a gracious and merciful God Israel's God really was. He's the God who forgives sins. He's the God who withholds judgment of his people through the death of a substitute in their place. Friends, even Israel, in a sense, was saved by their attachment to Joshua. You see that? Look at verse 20. Verse 20 indicates that if Israel had broken their covenant with Gibeon, God's wrath would have broken out against them for swearing upon his name in vain. So in a sense, by saving Gibeon from Israel's wrath, he saved Israel from God's wrath. In this story, both Jews and Gentiles obtain mercy from God through their savior, Joshua. Friends, I know this, this passage is bewildering. It's a little bit unsettling. And I think that's the point, right? God's mercy is not for the righteous. God's mercy is for sinners who come to him through his appointed mediator. The message of Joshua 9 is, is not God loves the truth tellers. That's not the message. The message of Joshua 9 is not God saves the prayerful. No, brothers and sisters, the amazing message of Joshua 9 is that God delights to show mercy to dishonest, self-serving sinners like Gibeon and to prideful, self-reliant sinners like Israel. How? He shows mercy to those who attach themselves to his chosen mediator, to their savior and leader. Joshua and in this way the story of Gibeon points us forward in history to a Joshua to come to a better mediator to a perfect Savior and King who saves both Jews and Gentiles from the judgment they deserve through his sinless life his atoning death his mighty resurrection from the grave as the message of Joshua 9 points us to the staggering mercy of our God and his son our Lord Jesus, whose blood and righteousness wipes away the stain of our lying, prayerless hearts. Friends, the amazing news of the gospel, the amazing news of the good news of Jesus is not that you deserve God's mercy, not that you can somehow attain it through your good works or your perfect law keeping or by doing your best. The way that you receive mercy from the judgment you deserve is being rightly related through faith in his Son. In Christ, you come to God on Christ's merits, not your own. You come to God through Christ's work, not your own. Just like Joshua, just like Joshua in this story is where God's mercy was found for Gibeon and Israel. Friends, Jesus is where God's mercy is found for us. There's just no other way to access it. So friends, are you rightly related to God through Christ? Have you humbled yourself and come to him to find safety and refuge and grace? Well, if not, I pray you'll do that even today. I pray that you'd talk to someone near you who, who's a Christian, who's a member of this church. Come find me at the back door. Say, I'd like to find out more. I'd like to hear more about this good news of Jesus. We would love to talk to you further. Our merciful champion. Now turn to chapter 10, and we're going to look at our mighty champion in the, in the time remaining our mighty champion. As I mentioned earlier, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 10, it tell us that in response to the Gibeonite alliance with Israel, Adonai Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, marshaled together five kings that came up against Gibeon. If they could kind of knock off Gibeon, well, surely they'd weaken Israel, right? Let's pick up the story in verse 6. Joshua 10, 6. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the king of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up, Upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. He struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth-horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth-horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven upon them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones and the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Aijalom. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Friends, if the headliner of Joshua 9 is God's mercy, the headliner of chapter 10 is God's might. In his sovereignty. This story pictures our God as a divine warrior who goes to battle for his people. I hope you picked up on this theme as we read. I mean, verse 8 the Lord tells Joshua not to fear the coalition of kings. Why? He says, I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. And how's that for a confidence inspiring promise? If God is for you, no one can stand against you, right? Verse 10 and the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel. And if you're reading the ESV, you're gonna see a footnote right next to the, to the next word, who, the pronoun there. The correct translation, as the footnote says, very well may be that he, the Lord, struck them with a great blow and chased them by the way. The Lord threw them in the panic. The Lord struck them and chased them. Verse 11, and the kings and the armies fled from Israel, As the kings and the armies fled from Israel, the Lord began to weaponize his creation, didn't he? He threw down hailstones, killed more with the hail than he did with the sword. And then of course, in verses 12 to 14, the, the sun and the moon, well, they do the bidding of the Almighty with the end of verse 14, stating the obvious, for the Lord fought for Israel. He's their great warrior and champion. Eleven. when God decides to fight for his people, their greatest enemies don't stand a chance. Miss game over from the beginning. And really, the entire Christian message, the entire Bible hinges on this truth. Christianity is not a feel-good religion that affirms your inner strength. It's not the religious version of a, of a mental health coach who's always trying to pump you up and tell you what you can do in yourself and the power of positive thinking and all the rest. No, friends, the message of Christianity is that in yourself, you have no inherent power and no built-in way to win the battles that you most desperately need to win. The message of the Bible is that you, in fact, cannot defeat the dominating power of sin over your life. You cannot rescue yourself from the penalty your sin has earned. You cannot resurrect yourself from death to life. Sin and death are far too strong and far too ruthless. You're no match for them, neither am I. And that's just life before Christ, right? It's not like the reality changes once you become a Christian. I mean, like all of a sudden you become some you know, superhuman Christian by virtue of belonging to Christ that you now in and of yourself have, have necessary resources to win the battle on your own. You've got all it takes to obey Christ's commands and resist temptation and make disciples and love others and persevere to the end by yourself. No, the message of Christianity is that in fact, you do not have the ability to save yourself. You do not have the natural ability to sanctify yourself and to keep yourself to the end. And friends, this is not where the good news ends, but precisely where it begins. It's where it begins. Our great hope is not in our ability to fight and win by our own strength, but in our God who takes up our cause and fights for us. Your sin is no match for Him. Oh, it's a match for you. but Your sin is no match for Him because Christ fulfilled the demands of God's law in His life and He satisfied the curse of the law and His death by bearing the curse for us. Death is no match for Him because the grave did its worst to Jesus and still could not hold Him. Beloved God in Christ by His Spirit is the divine warrior who crushes every enemy that stands between us and eternal life with Him in the promised land. I mean, even the demonic powers and Satan himself could not resist the onslaught of God's great might. Colossians 2.15 In this warfare image, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ. Friends, a warrior with this type of unmitigated sovereignty and might, it would be terrifying without the knowledge that all of that ferocity of might and power is in fact the ferocity of his great love for us. As his people who belong to him through faith in Jesus. What's left for us to do is not to fight necessarily and try to win. What's left for us to do is simply to rejoice and to tremble that God, the warrior, doesn't fight against us. He fights for us. He fought for us in the past on the cross, He fights for us in our present temptations and struggles by giving us his spirit and the grace of the gospel, and he will fully and finally vanquish our foes when Christ comes again. Friends, is this your view of God? Is this how you view Christ? Is there room in your theology for a warrior king? One commentator put it this way. made me laugh. The popular image of Jesus is that he's not only kind and tender, but also kind of soft and prissy, as though Jesus comes to us reeking of hand cream. I guess a warrior could use hand cream, maybe, I don't know. Such a Jesus can hardly steal the soul that is daily assaulted by the enemy. We need to learn the catechism of Psalm 24. Question, who is the the king of glory? Answer, Yahweh strong and mighty. Yahweh mighty in battle. It's only as we know the warrior of Israel who fights for us and sometimes without us that we have hope of triumphing in this muck of life. Yes and amen. We need our God to fight for us. Friend, so much ink has been spilt by scholars debating this phenomena of of chapters, or excuse me, uh, of verses 12 to 14, where the the Lord harnesses the heavenly lights as weapons of war against His people's enemies. And, And for many, this idea that the Lord stopped the rotation of the earth for a few hours while not causing some cosmic catastrophe, is just a bridge too far intellectually. Like, the Bible was believable up until then. Really? I mean, seriously, if, friends, if we really believe that God spoke the universe into existence out of nothing, but by the word of his power, why is this type of miracle really that big of a deal? Why couldn't God do that and keep everything under control? It's really no big deal to him. The most straightforward reading of the, in the English translation is that God prolonged the brightness of the day so that his people could fight. But there are clues in the context of the story and in the original Hebrew that indicate that what very well may have happened is that the Lord stopped the setting of the moon and he stopped the rising of the sun to prolong the darkness of night so that his, his people could continue to have the upper hand in the confusion and chaos brought on by the night and the storm. After all, it had just been hailing, right? At, at the end of the day, pun intended, at the end of the day... It doesn't really matter which you believe happened. What matters is that God is the one who gets all the glory for such a feat. Let's look at the end of verse thirteen. Look, look at the end of verse thirteen. The author of Joshua writes, "Is this not written in the book of Jashar, which would, apparently is just non-biblical history book? Is it you know this extra-biblical history book that circulated in ancient Israel?" Are not these things, This not this written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped at the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set or to come, as depending on how you translate it, for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord caused the lights of the heavens to stand still. Is that what it says? Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. You guys, I tricked you. There has been no day like it before or since. What does it say? When the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Friends, apparently what the author wants to draw our attention to, what was the biggest deal was not the sun and the moon standing still in the sky. The biggest deal was that the Lord heeded the voice of a man. That's what he says. That's not happened before or since. What astounded the author of Joshua. What it ought to cause our mouths to fall open in amazement isn't the mere fact of this miracle, but that a man spoke and God listened. Joshua, the intercessor, summoned nature to obey his word and God listened and nature obeyed. And of course, all of this throws our mind's eye to what we read in the Gospels when the raging sea became tranquil in an instant at the command of Jesus. When trembling disciples ask each other, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Jesus didn't say, son, stand still. But he did say to the storm, peace, be still. And nature jumped into submission to his word. But friends, even even more than that, even more than that analogy, we see in Joshua 10, I think, an even more deep and meaningful pattern. I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this pattern, this preview of Christ. The Gibeonites petitioned Joshua for help and protection. Joshua responds by marshalling Israel for battle and and then by interceding to the Lord, calling the sun and the moon to obey. And God responds to Joshua's prayer by answering and by fighting for his people. It's so extraordinary. So much that the author says nothing like this has happened before or since. And yet, as one theologian helpfully put it to me, what is extraordinary under the old covenant is ordinary under the new. What's extraordinary in the old covenant is ordinary under the new. What happened in isolation on the Old Testament side of the cross happens every single day for every single believer in Jesus on this side of the cross. Each time a a believer petitions the Lord Jesus for help, Jesus intercedes by taking the request to his Father, and the Father responds by hearing and answering. As the hymn says, the father hears him pray. His dear anointed one, he cannot turn away the presence of his son. Brothers and sisters, if Joshua had God's ear, you better believe Jesus does. When you pray in Jesus' name, you can be confident that the father's ear is inclined toward you, is inclined to you weak and struggling sinner. Why? Because you're trying really hard? No, because his ear is inclined to Jesus. He cannot turn away the presence and voice of his son. Our God will move heaven and earth to fight for you out of his love for his son and now his love for you in him. Friends, this message ought not to cause us to sit back in Christian passivity Oh, wow, if God's fighting my battles, well, I can just, you know, kind of lay back on my Christian couch, eat my Doritos, and watch God work. You know, this message of God's victory isn't let go and let God. This message is trust God and get going. Get moving. Keep praying, right? Be active in ministry. Stand firm in the day of trouble. Get your gospel sword unsheathed and start swinging. Why? So you can prove that you're a strong and capable soldier in the Lord's army? No. So that you can prove that even in your profound sin and weakness, the battle is the Lord's. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you praise this morning as our great warrior and king and conqueror, our champion and victor, who won the battles that we cannot win. Oh Lord, we give you glory, even as we sang in our first song about uh, your grace being worthy of glory and you bringing us salvation from start to finish. So we close this service by a desire to, to proclaim to the watching world, all glory be to Christ our King. All glory be to Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.